Hello and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Luke Plimmer, and each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves, and the times when they've died on stage. Our backstage pass holder, John O'Neill, will also take us behind the scenes at the Crescent Theatre Birmingham to discover more about what goes on into making a great amateur production. This week's episode is all about accents and dialects, and I'm going to be speaking to vocal coach Karen Kelly so we can learn a lot more about how different actors might have to learn different accents and what different processes they have to go through. So, Karen, tell us about your first love. Well, my first love, um, in terms of theatre... Uh, my first love was when I got to go to the theatre in London and that wasn't until I was in my early 20s when I moved there to work. Prior to that I was sort of a small child enjoying performance here and there um, (laughs) but not uh, in a structured way. I'd be um, a bit of a drama queen maybe, enjoyed dancing, (laughs) you know that kind of thing. But there was no encouragement for any structured outlet and also no money in those days either. Um, I was pushed more towards sport and academia. But I think there must have been a latent drama queen inside me, you know, wanting to get out in a way. (laughs) But I never got involved um, or never pushed myself to get involved because I never thought I was good enough. Um, But I read a lot and I really loved literature. And when I moved to London... And my first big show that I saw was Les Miserables in its very early days. So that's how old I am, Um, as as Michael Ball was Marius. Um, But that for me was pivotal in in getting me into a theatre and getting me to make the connection between literature and theatre as well. I mean, obviously, I knew it existed. We'd had some theatre trips at school and things like that. But um, it was it was being in London and being exposed to everything that was there that really fired me up, I suppose. Uh, I was I was living at the time before that in the West Country, and there wasn't a lot going on theatre-wise down there where I lived. We were a little bit out in the sticks. So... Um, and at school, drama was taught through English. There was yeah. no specific drama departments. Um, so, yeah, so London opened up the world of theatre for me. And uh, then my big love is Shakespeare. So that was uh, a real um, joy for me to be able to go to the Barbican because that was the RSC's second home in those days. So I did three plays in a day kind of thing armchair Shakespeare they used to call it and um, then travelling up to Stratford as well to to the home of the Bard and seeing plays up there brilliant yeah so what's been the love of your theatrical life for me it was Les Mis that was a a pivotal moment Um, it it opened my eyes it it spoke to me it was I was emotionally invested in the whole um, musical I'm not a musical theatre fan um, per se but um struck me so much that particular production that I've not seen it again wow. I won't go and see it because that stays in my memory wow. although I think I'm ready now all this time <laughs> later but for years and years people say oh go and see Les Mis and no that that was the performance for me that spoke to my heart yeah 
So tell us about the one that got away. I can't really say that there, there is one that got away in that respect because I always uh, approached everything and, and had a broad view of lots of things. So I was, I was never sort of desperate to be involved in one particular thing. Sure. Um, and I had a broad um, spectrum of, of likes. I wasn't greatly involved in, in musical theatre, as I said. Um, but I think I've, I've done quite well in, in um, realising certain ambitions in terms of seeing people in the theatre as well, because sure. I, I prefer to watch rather than act, because, again, I'm, I'm more of a... Yeah. a critic than an actor. Sure, that's fair <laughs> enough. So tell us about a time when you died on stage. There have been a couple of moments when, um, sadly, I dried up. Oh yeah, and, well, we've all had those. But because there are such wonderful people who work at the Crescent and there are very good actors who, who act here, yeah. the person I was opposite managed to, um, well, not managed to, very cleverly, uh, picked it up and took it and helped me and I don't think anybody was any the wiser at the time yeah. but it's the rabbit in the headlights look sure. when you know and it was we were outdoors as well which was probably a good thing because I couldn't see the whites of anybody's eyes at that point. <laughs> you know, it's not like being in a small studio. So as you said the theme of this episode is all about uh, vocal coaching and like teaching accents and dialects and that ties into the Crescent Theatre's upcoming production of the Pitman Painters mm -hmm. and you've got quite a lot of experience with vocal coaching so how did you originally get into vocal coaching and like teaching like accents and different dialects? Okay um, when I became more interested in theatre and theatricals and when my daughter was old enough um, to start doing things. She was very interested in theatre and drama and I encouraged her because I didn't have that encouragement when I was her age and so I gave her as much opportunity as I could. And I got involved in workshops down at the RSC myself because I was doing things in the primary school where I work with the younger children and I felt that there needed to be another outlet for these children. Sure. Not just, you know, sitting and writing and writing and writing. And um, in order to do that well, I decided to put myself through workshops to gain knowledge, experience. And in all of these workshop experiences, some of them were a week long. The, 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 I went on two or three making Shakespeare weeks yeah. down at the RSC. Brilliant. And it was always the voice and text section sure. that really fired me up and I was really, really passionate yeah. about because I love the text of Shakespeare as well. So whilst we were doing, we were acting and we did have to do acting and I did let myself, immerse myself in that, it was always the vocal side of things that um, interested me. Um, but in terms of, of coaching accents and, and getting into that, I've always been, uh, and there's more to it than this I have to say, but I've always been a mimic of accents. So wherever I go and my daughter is a little bit similar. We tend to absorb the accent of the place where we are. So when I was a very small child, we moved from Manchester, which is my native town, to Yorkshire. And I was only five at the time, but apparently, according to my mother, within about three weeks of being there, I was talking in a broad Leeds accent. Wow. Um, <laughs> But we do this now if we if we go over to Ireland and I start talking in an Irish accent and we have to be very careful that we don't upset the natives. Sure. <laughs> um, so I've always been interested in the way people speak and I've always had a very good ear 
for sort of um, identifying where people yeah. come from. But there is more to it than that. And I decided at um, a ripe old age to apply to do a master's course Brilliant. at Birmingham Conservatoire, which I did. Um, we started in 2018, but of course everybody knows what happens in 2020. So I of course. It in, in, as, you know, in lockdown, but successfully. And um, so that, that took me into the world of acting and vocal coaching because the, the yeah. two sort of go hand in hand my degree qualifies me to help people not just actors but anybody who uses their voice for you know safe vocal use healthy vocal use um, as well as teaching the accents which I do enjoy yeah but there is more there's more of a science to it than than just having a good ear yeah can you Tell us a bit more about that process you'd go through to teach people, to coach and support uh, actors with accents and dialects. Yeah, sure. Um, so for each accent, wherever it is in the world, in the country, wherever, there are what we call signature sounds. So they are the, the particular vowel sounds that that accent will, will make. Um, consonants as well, whether they are there, whether they're left out. Uh, also in dialects there are certain words that are used in a dialect that aren't used in other dialects so sure. you know it's that sort of thing that, that is needed to um, be learned but it's the importance of learning an accent is finding where in the mouth the word is created so what are you doing with your tongue is it hitting the alveolar ridge is it between the teeth is it behind the teeth are the lips spread are the lips um, rounded um, because if it's a lazy accent, then the lips aren't going to move at all. So, sure. you know, a bit like a Cockney accent. If it's Welsh, then you're doing a lot of lip rounding because yeah. that's where the, the accent's formed. So it's about that. It's about getting the actor to feel it in their mouth as well. Yeah, because actors often say sometimes that they can't do particular accents. So is it possible for an actor to learn any accent, you know, with the rich coaching and exercises? Oh, it's, it's absolutely possible. Um, it, again, it's, like I said before, it's about them listening, but more importantly about finding where to make the sound. Um, it's, I find it's more difficult for me to teach my Manchester accent <laughs> because I do it automatically. So yeah. I have to think even harder about, well, how, how do I actually say that? Um, and it's... It, but it's good because it makes you think, it makes you stop and think, well, actually, you know, yeah, that's how I say that, but I'm doing yeah, it automatically, say, so, yeah, you know, don't realise. consider that, actually. Yeah. That's a good point. Which is why it's not always, not always a good thing to get the person who speaks in that way to teach it. Sure. Um, because we use, I use the phonetic alphabet to break down the accent yeah. to help those actors find where that placement is for those particular sounds in their mouth. So, um, you know, if, if it's uh, an R sound and it is pronounced ah, there's a, there's a difference in the way that the, the mouth is shaped and what the tongue is doing. And it's just getting that, that actor to feel that and to be able to reproduce yeah. it. But it takes work on their part as well. Obviously, oh, yeah. it's, it's all to do with practice and, and sure. looking at themselves in the mirror as well instead yeah. of just listening because it 
can be quite challenging. I mean, I can speak from personal experience, having <laughs> had to learn a Geordie accent for the Pitman Painters myself. So what do you think of the challenges that can come with the different accent or dialect learning or coaching? Well, the challenge is, um, first and foremost, is that everybody has their own accent. Yes. Whereas I break down an accent based on standard English, and not everybody talks standard English, of course. So when I'm breaking down an accent, I have to take into account how the actor speaks before they start learning the accent, if that mm. makes sense. Yes. So when we're looking at phonetics, we're looking at how it's spoken in standard English and then how it's spoken in the accent. But in between that, you've got the actor's accent as well. Yeah. So the, the challenge is, is taking it from the base of standard English and breaking it down. So you've got your base versus the, the new consonant analysis and vowel inventory of the accent and applying that to how the actor that you're working with speaks themselves. Yeah. Um, the other thing with an accent is as well that um, a particular sound may not always sound the same in that accent. You can't say, oh yes, in, in Welsh they always pronounce something this way yeah. because it depends on intention, it depends on the emphasis, it depends on where that sound is in the word and where the word is in the sentence. Yeah. So um, it, it could sound slightly differently in the same accent. Mm. And it, that's the challenge, is that you can't just say, oh yes, every sound in that, on that page is going to be like this. Yeah. Because you have to take into account those, those other effects. And male, female speakers, age, um, and expression, all those sorts of things need yeah. to be included in... in you know, the whole process of learning. Absolutely. What's been the most rewarding or challenging accent or dialect that you've worked on or supported with or maybe used yourself in theatre? Um, I think this current project has been very rewarding because the Geordie accent is notoriously hard um, to learn and it was a lot of work to go through and yeah. look at all the various bits. And again, not come up with something that, you know, oh, you have to say this, you have to say that, but having that dialogue with the cast about, well, actually, how, what do you mean when you say that? It, it could come out in this way. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the, the conversations that we've had here about the Geordie accent and the work that I've put in and, and the work that the actors have put in have certainly proved really um, fruitful. Karen, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's been really interesting and really enjoyed speaking to you. And thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This episode, we're talking about the Crescent's upcoming production, The Pitmen Painters. But who were the Pitmen? Why and what did they paint? To start, let's journey back to the 1930s when our play begins and when over a million men were employed in the underground coal mining industry in the UK. Villages and towns, particularly in the north-east of England, Yorkshire and Wales, had grown up around large coal mines. These mines had dramatically increased production since the 1800s and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Whole, strong communities were formed around the coal pits or collieries, the men that worked in the coal pits became known early on as pitmen. The coal mining industry was stamped onto the community's identity, their social lives, tragedies and celebrations, 
and even their language. Mining life was dangerous, which also became part of the community consciousness. Miners could die in accidents, pit collapses or flooding. And these towns and places still feel their legacy as pit towns, perhaps especially since the closure of so many coal pits in the 1980s. One key pit town was Ashington in Northumberland, in the northeast of England, about 15 miles north of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. With large collieries nearby, including Woodhorn and Ellington, coal mining was a huge part of local life in Ashington. It even affected the language. Many people in Ashington and the surrounding areas spoke, and still speak, with a distinctive mine workers' accent and dialect known as Pitmatic or Yaka, which is different to the regional accents such as Geordie and Mackem, which are from Newcastle and Sunderland. You can still hear Pitmatic words like Cracket, C R A C K E T, Mara, M a double r a and clarts c l a r t s in their everyday language most of the employed working age men living near these collieries would be working as miners a typical day of manual labor would last 10 hours in the dark dangerous hot cramped dusty and sometimes very wet mines a working day would earn a miner about two pounds and six shillings, which is about £120 by today's standards. Working age actually meant men and boys, of course. The typical age for boys to leave school and go and find work was about 12 or 13 years old. For many, this led to a lifelong drive for self-improvement and self-education. This is where the Workers' Educational Association, or WEA, comes in. This was an adult further education charity founded in 1903 that still exists today. It's the largest voluntary provider of adult education in the UK. It was originally founded to provide educational opportunities to the working classes Back in 1927, it began supplying working-class men in the Ashington branch with opportunities to attend further education classes on a variety of subjects. And by 1934, having been through many of the usual subjects like evolution and philosophy, the Ashington branch tried to study economics but couldn't get hold of a tutor. They opted for another available class instead art appreciation. The WEA found someone via Durham University, the painter and tutor Robert Leon. Imagine for a moment the life of an Ashington pitman. From the age of 13 you have been working 10 hours a day in a coal mine and local life is all you know. You have probably never left Ashington unless you were a soldier in the World War. Ashington has no library or art galleries, and you have probably seen very few paintings, if any. Imagine an art tutor from a university 40 miles south arrives with a projector and some black and white slides of enormous Renaissance paintings of angels and cherubs on ceilings in churches thousands of miles away, and tries to talk about art history and form. 
This was the challenge that faced the Ashington miners and their tutor, Robert Leon. The group were dissatisfied with the course and struggled to find a starting point with art that held any meaning to them. To find a different way of connecting them with art, Leon hit upon an idea. He got them to create their own work, and this practical approach meant he could build up their understanding of their own approach to art and connection with the material by getting them to try it themselves and discuss the process, results and so on each time, starting with printouts from lino cuts and moving on to painting, the group began their phase of learning by doing. They had more opportunities to study other eras and styles of art, including a trip to London's National Gallery, and they experimented with their own subjects and styles, and they appreciated art through practical application. Although some would embrace and create extraordinary examples of modern art, their most famous work was remarkable at the time for depicting life as they saw it. Everyday working class life. Life in the working men's clubs, living room windows, terrier dogs and of course life in the coal pits. These paintings remain a vivid example from this area and era for the North East and the rest of the world. The terms of the Union and WEA meant the Ashington Group couldn't make their money from their paintings as part of the WEA class. But as they developed and started to exhibit locally, they began to receive interest and offers from experts and buyers. The group and their work became celebrated in the British art world of the 1930s and 40s, even though most of them had never had any formal artistic training besides what they learned from Robert Leon and as part of the group. Though some of them would receive offers from patrons to work independently, they formally set themselves up as a working collective, the Ashington Group. They met regularly between 1934 and 1983 to encourage their own progress, although most of them continued to work down the mines every day of their working lives. The play's author, Lee Hall, talks in his introduction to the play about how art is for everyone and how society becomes richer for everyone when art and culture, including painting and theatre, are opened up to all as they should be. The Pitmen Painters is partly Lee Hall's testament to a time when working-class men were given the opportunity to learn, make and share art. They took the opportunity with both hands and enriched the art world with it. It is partly a lament for the community of the northern pit towns, many of whom are now struggling with identity and unemployment, now all the working coal mines are closed. And it is partly a lament for what Hall sees as an arts world that is no longer as open as it might have been to everyone, no matter their means or background. The Ashington Group Trust still maintains a gallery of their paintings in Ashington that you can visit today. All the paintings depicted in the play of their experiences, Lee Hall's The Pitman Painters, are examples of their own work and fees go towards maintaining the collection. Ashington, at last, has its own gallery, a monument to art created by the working classes. Maybe pay them a visit or support a local gallery 
Maybe you might even pick up a brush yourself, just to see what happens. As one of our Pitman painters, Oliver Kilbourne, would say, just paint. I'm here sat opposite two Pitmen painters, Damien Dickens and Brian Wilson. Hello both. Hi John, you're right. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. Pitmen Painters brings to life the unusual real-life story of a group of coal miners and a dental mechanic who, in 1934, hired a professor from Newcastle University to teach an art appreciation evening class. The play takes us from amusing first dabbles with paintbrushes to the group being recognised and even lauded in the art world. It's a moving piece that celebrates the very notion of community and working class spirit and allows us to embrace the energy, ideas and tensions that emerge from this unlikely artistic journey. It runs from the 14th to the 21st of May in the Crescent Theatre's Ron Barber studio. Damien. Let's start with you. Sure. Can you tell us a little about your character, the, the setting of the play, and the steps you've taken to make the setting believable and authentic? Yeah, I play uh, Jimmy Floyd, um, one of the miners. Um, he's a, a real person, so he was a real miner. Um, we all play real people. They're all based on real people. And have you looked into these people? Have you researched them? I think we all have in our own way, yeah. We watched a video when we first started... Um, looking at them and it was, it was a bit of history on who they were where they were from what kind of paintings they did uh, i think one, mike went to the he went up to see the paintings didn't he the, the paintings they did are in a um a kind of museum uh, in ashington right so uh it, it's we'd all like to go i think at some point but um it's 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 very far Northumberland yeah. what did mike far. say well who's mike playing mike plays harry wilson right yeah. yeah um he loved it yeah yeah he said it was great i think um the thing that we all kind of uh, connect with and, and think is extraordinary is the fact that they were all a group of miners from the same area who painted without any training. And they were good as well. You look at them and they're really good. It's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary group of people. And, and the me. paintings are a real part of the staging, which I know we've got a question on later, but tell us about how the paintings are integrated with the staging. So you won't see the paintings on stage, but you'll see them as projections right. behind. So when we're talking about them, because we move sometimes from one to another and the audience will see them behind. Mm. Um, but we've got easels and we've got things on them that represent them so yeah we kind of know what we're working with so, so the play sort of intermingles with the the real life the real history yeah by having those yeah. paintings yeah projected. I I, yeah you'll be able to still see actual paintings done by the actual group because yeah. the, the group was huge there's only um four or five of us on the actual stage but there was more oh, there was right, much more in, in real okay. life yeah so it's been boiled down for dramatic purposes into this cast of about six men is it yeah, yeah, there's 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 five. Uh, you've got five miners. Um, oh, except Harry, who's a dental mechanic. Uh, then you've got the professor uh, Robert Lyon, who comes in. He's, he's the, the sort of group's tutor. They hire him to teach them about art appreciation. Yeah. And then you've got a couple of other characters as well, Miss um, Sutherland and Susan Parks, who's a life model. And and this this was set in a community in the 1930s. Yes, a coal mining community in a very distinct part of the world. Um, so for example, in terms of the dialect, how are you bringing, how are you finding that and how, how are you bringing that to life? Do you want to say that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got our very good tutor in uh, Karen Kelly. Right. 
who I've worked with before on uh, well, you did as well on Hobson, yeah, Hobson's yeah. Choice. We're doing Salford accents then. Um, she's given us lots of material, written material, stuff we can actually hear. Uh, you know, links to to various sites that we can actually hear the dialect. What she did tell us though that there are loads of different dialects in the northeast. I mean, we just think of it as Geordie, mm. but people in Ashington would speak different from people in Newcastle, from Sunderland, from Dartlepool, from whatever. So. Um, what accent we're actually achieving, I don't know, but... Uh, and have you had to spend quite a lot of time trying to get that accent right, like the vowel sounds and all of that? Because the Newcastle accent is a tough accent, and this yeah. is sort of an offset of that, isn't it? Although they would say it's not, it's its own thing. Yeah. So it's, I mean, how... I mean, I think I've got quite a strong Brummie accent, so I've almost had to kind of try and unlearn that to learn the Ashington. Yeah. And it, it's not easy, and I still think I'm, I've got a few bits to work on. Can you give us a line of Ashington? Oh god. Um, Luke, nobody is doing any painting in this art class. Yours is good, Matt. Yeah. You've had it like nailed from day one. Really. No. Yes, you have. No. Yeah, that's good. No. That's good. I, I, I would be terrified of doing an entire play in Pit Manic, which is that is the challenge, really. That's part yeah. of why I wanted to do it. Yeah. Really, you got to try and push yourselves. I mean, wait, the... some some words are easy. Mm. You can easily adapt them, and they sound jordy. But there are quite a lot of common words that you think, well, what that doesn't that sounds just ordinary. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's just the fact that you've got. A lot of words to talk about, you know. To be honest, Lee Hall helps you in a way because he's written certain words in the way that you should say, so you already know. But sometimes it, there's, there's certain contradictions, like it might it might say Dune and then later on Down, for instance. Oh, I see. So you have to kind of navigate. And, and there's one, I've read the play uh, this week in preparation, and there's yeah. one um, line, Divint. Divint now. They say Divint. Yeah. What does that mean? I don't. Don't. Oh. don't know. Okay. I didn't know. didn't know. What would you know? Yeah. And Brian, coming to you, yeah. you're playing George. Uh, what does this character bring to the piece? And how does it contrast with Jimmy? Because you're quite different people. Oh, yes. Very different. Um, George is cantankerous. I think that's the word to use. Uh, and he doesn't care what he says and he doesn't care who, who it upsets. Um, he's the rep, the union rep for the mine, but more importantly for the play, he's also the representative for the, the official representative for the WEA, which is the Workers' Educational Association, mm. which was formed in 1903 specifically to have adult education for people who'd left school early. So a lot of the working class, obviously, kids left school early so they could earn money to put into the, to the family coffers. Because um, they were down the mine at the age of 13, weren't they? Yeah. 12, 13. Well, 10, some of them. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, Jimmy has this one long speech where he explains how he started, you know, very emotional, sort of, which Damien does wonderfully. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, that's, that's the point. I mean, the WA is still going. I mean, it's, it's a voluntary sector organisation, mm. which is specific. It's, I think it's the biggest one in the country that looks at adult education. Yeah, that's right. Um, but... Because of that, uh, George is very much into the rules and regulations and is a stickler for sticking to the procedures and woe betide anybody who dares to go outside the procedures and he gives them a tongue lashing if they actually say do something that's not in the correct procedures. So he also has a feisty relationship with a couple of the characters. The one character we haven't mentioned is, is the young lad, who is called Young Lad. Mm. He hasn't got a name. Yeah. 
Um, but he's actually George's nephew. Right. But he's unemployed, he's on the dole, and George thinks he's skiving and keeps reminding him that he's not got a job and he keeps t getting at him, but, you know, why haven't you got a job? We can see why you haven't got a job and, and it leads to certain consequences later in the play, which I shan't reveal. But mm. that, your character, George, which is this sort of, he's an overly formal voice, isn't he, at times, is in stark contrast to Jimmy, who just never follows the instructions, does he? No, I think sometimes he doesn't understand the instructions, so that, that's that's almost half the battle with Jimmy. He's not the brightest button in the shop. Yeah, so, yeah. George um, has a line, we're not all, we're not thick, you know, well, apart from Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to establish that straight from the off. Yeah. And Jimmy, does Jimmy agree with that? Uh, well, obviously not, no. He, he considers himself... Um, I think he, I think he knows he's. He does say a bit later on. He, I know I'm a bit stupid, so he knows he's not. He's never going to be the smartest in the room. Mm. But I think he, he, he just struggles to understand and grasp certain elements, especially when we're talking about the art. And I think all the lads are on the same page at the start. They don't understand what you know. Why do we have to know the meaning of this and the meaning of that? But I think by the end, it's still sort of Jimmy who's struggling to get to grips with it he, he has more knowledge he knows more about it because mm. he's you know read up on it and people have told him stuff but he doesn't understand it quite as well as the others when they discuss it and that leads us perfectly on to our third question which, which is about character progression basically so the play mm. starts with all the pitmen being totally new to art and painting but there is real character progression as it goes on and you've already told us a little bit about that um yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure Jimmy really progresses much other than that, to be honest. He's still... Um, he, he's not one-dimensional. Uh, like, he was a real person. I don't know if the real Jimmy Floyd was as, you know... But but the fact that Jimmy doesn't progress mm. is perhaps a counterpoint and makes it more obvious that the others really do progress. Um, mm. Because the first time these uh, these blokes have their art class... You know, they don't know what's going on. They're not really comfortable with it. Um, but then we see them just a few scenes later and they are describing art in, in completely different ways. And I just wonder how you'd approach that as an actor. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that, as you said at the beginning, there's no connection between the tutor and the, and the, the, the group. Mm. There's no way that they come together until he suggests, well, why don't you do it yourself? Mm. And... As this play goes on, the tutor sort of withdraws from the from the lessons, and it's just amongst the, the five of them discussing the the the, the, the meaning of, of what they've done and the meaning of other stuff. And they go to galleries and they start talking about things like that. I mean, and it's not just art because by the end of the the the, sh the play, my, my my character talks about Shakespeare and Goethe and gives a definition of an allegory. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not just confined to, to art. So, yeah, I mean, all, 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 I think, I mean, Jimmy does progress, but uh, perhaps not as far as... Well, yeah, in, in, in his own way, yeah. I think he, he likes to be involved with the debates and it's organic, but he asks a lot of questions. He, he doesn't quite... I think he just doesn't quite truly understand certain bit. Every time you think he sort of gets there, there's something else that he's got to learn and mm -hmm. he's got to get his head round. But he absolutely does stay involved. And he, oh, of know, course, yeah. He, yeah. He, he absolutely bounces around in the conversation as much as much as the other guys, and ironically, it's his work that that gets recognised. Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he's got every right to. I, I, I was thinking about it the other day. I think that there's there's something to be said for the the kind of high end art that 
not everyone understands. I mean, mm. I'll, I'll, it, 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 show me a triangle. It's a triangle, you know, mm. or a circle, or a circle and a square, you know. Rectangle. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it is what it is, and it's that kind of surface level, but that still doesn't make it not art, yeah. if you know what I mean. It's exactly. still There's still a place for it in the world. There's still, you know... Yeah. It still needs to be done. And the, the play is a lot about that in the play. Is the art is what you want it to be. Mm. And whatever you you read of it in your mind. And it's it's not about some fancy description, you know, in some fancy university. And I think that's a lot of the point of the piece, isn't it? Mm. Um, which does lead us on to our next question. There are plenty of ideas, debate and thought in the play. At one point, Van Gogh, or Van Gogh, however you want to say it, is quoted as saying... I don't paint pictures, I paint experience. How have you connected with the experiences the playwright has written about and what ideas have connected with you, either of you, in the rehearsal room? Well, I, I mean, you see the, the, the pictures that they've painted. I mean, they are a high standard. For, for me, I mean, me who, who actually enjoyed the fact that sometimes I got actually got a D in art. That was mm -hmm. the highest I ever got in art. Um, I mean, the, the detail is fantastic, and, and I mean, George, George isn't isn't particularly well known, I don't think, for his paintings. But I mean, the one I've seen, it's it's, am it's amazing considering it's, they're, they're totally untutored. Um, but uh, how it affects me, I don't know, because I'm I must admit I'm a bit of a philistine with regard to art and, and sculpture. I mean. I, can't remember the last time I went to an art gallery. But, no, but the ideas I, in the piece go beyond just art, don't they? Oh, yeah, I, I relate it more to theatre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the discussion in debate, I always think back to theatre and you know my own background and where I was from and um, I guess what I understood and and kind of finding my my own sort of rhythm and what what I want to do with it as well, mm. what I enjoy most and what I want to. A big part of the, the the piece is you put art to one side. A lot of it's about class mm. and socialism and, and and capitalism. And it's about the access accessibility of the arts yeah. to people other than the rich. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the, that's quite because because Lee Hall is a socialist, and this this runs through the whole of the play. That it's you know, the arts should be available to the whole of the population, not just the ones who can afford it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and and you, the way that is brought home in the play is this: this lady turns up, doesn't she, in the first act? To she's heard word of this group from Leon or Lion, whatever his name is, the tutor. Um, Mr. Lion. Oh yeah, okay, Lion. I can't do it. I'm not going to try. <laughs> Don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> and you know she's she's from moneyed class. And so that, I suppose, is a way of, it's a device to bring it home to the audience, to spark the debate and, and to show what that difference is. Yeah, when she comes in immediately, there's a, um, a, a change in the group and a change with, you know, the status and everything. It's, yeah. And then, of course, she tries to take one of the miners, Oliver, who we haven't actually mentioned, uh, under her wing and offers him money, regular money, to give up his job in the pit. And that's that's another street and a strand of the uh, of the play. Mm. Will he give up the life that he knows to go into the unknown and just spend his life painting? Mm. There's a lot of discussion around that. Yeah. yeah. So it's you've got the collectivism, the collectivist nature of these group of miners who work and you know and and do leisure together, paint together, versus this person who's coming in and saying, you know, I'm gonna 
bung you a load of money and change your life that way. It's kind of that working class ordeal of you have to have a job. You have to have a steady, secure job. Mm. You have to pay, you know, a good, honest wage. Mm. And you take that away or you try and do something else, you know. I think um, when, when the lads are discussing it, they're like, well, what if she changes her mind? You know, what if she hasn't got the money anymore? You know, whereas mining is, as dangerous as it is, it's still, at the time, it was still a job that needed yeah. to be done. Stick to what you know, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, so you're both heading into rehearsals now. It's a fortnight, roughly, till your opening night. What will you be rehearsing today, and how is the piece shaping up? Um, so we, we're doing a full run-through tonight. And how are your runs going? Are you, are you booked down? Are you getting through them? We've been booked down, I think, mostly for, for a while. Um, just muddling through, still a lot of prompts needed uh, for, for, for all of us, and, to be honest. And picking it? up cues is, yeah. is the other thing. Because I mean, there's a lot of dialogue which is quite similar from scene to scene. And yeah. you think, yeah. which scene am I in now? Mm. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah. uh, it definitely relies on the pace as well. Because so, like, it's quite funny. It's quite a funny piece. Well, and the we haven't said that, have we? I mean, it's, it's obviously got these very uh, serious yeah. uh, uh, strands to it. But, it, but it, I mean, I read it before I auditioned. I thought, oh, this is not, not a bad play. Nice parts. Vaguely amusing. Started doing it on yeah. actually. It was hilarious. I mean, there are parts that are really funny. Particularly in the first mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. Second act, it gets a bit more serious. But that's why you have to be on the cues, you have to be on top of it, because otherwise you sort of lose it then. You lose that timing, yeah. yeah. And finally, regular listeners to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast will know that we like to enrich the palate of our guests' lives by immersing them in the finer brush strokes of trivia. And you two are no exception. So, may I present to you Yaka or Crapper, a pitmatic dialect trivia quiz. Pitmatic, which we have talked about a little bit, colloquially colloquially known as Yaka, is an English dialect spoken in the Northumberland and Durham Coalfield areas of England, which includes the Ashington area, where this play is set. I'm going to give you a Yaka dialect word or phrase, and then a possible meaning, and you have to tell me if the meaning is Yaka, which means it's true, or Crapper, which means it's not true. Go. The first one is going to go to Brian. Bagey. I'm going to spell it for you because my Pitmanic accent is non-existent. Is B-A-I-G-I-E. Bagey. A plastic bag. Is that yakka or crapper? We'll go for crapper. Correct. Oh, one on the board. Bagey is a turnip or swede. <clears throat> Damien, are you ready? So this, ready. This yeah. is your first question. Chum is blank, as in his face was chum. Is that yakka or crapper? Um, I'm going to say, John, that that's yakka. <clears throat> that's crapper, oh. I'm afraid. The real meaning know. of chum is empty. So you would say, collect up the chum Glasses. Yeah, but you said blank, which is sort of <laughs> kind of empty. You know what I mean? I, th I think I should get that. Well, I can see what you're saying. It's, I think that's, that's a, a close false. meaning. Half, you, you've, half. You've, no, he's done me over there. But I'm, the I'm geniuses that. that wrote this quiz probably did that deliberately just to catch. Don't like that. No, somebody I'm, I'm considered. Uh, we're even. One one. <laughs> Question two for you, Brian, is croggy, which is C R O G G I E, and it is a ride 
on a bike's handlebars, as in, give us a croggy home. Is that yakka or crapper? Oh, we go for yakka on that one. Correct. Oh, That's ding, two ding, 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 ding. in a row. Uh, right, Damien, this yep. is your chance to make some kind of fight Well, it's 2-1, so we'll see what... You ready? 2 2-1. I'd say 2 nil, but it's all right. <laughs> we can all have our own opinions. Uh, Fema is weak, spindly or fragile. That's F-E-M-M-E-R, Fema. Is that yakka or crapper? Can you use it in a sentence? I can't because it's not one written down. Just trying to play with you, to be honest. Um, let's go, Yaka. Go on. Correct. You're in the game. I'm still in the game. You two, can two, win. You can for. win it. Uh, Brian, this is for you to win, actually. If you Ooh. get this, you have one. What they disputed. <clears throat> the word is Jougle. J-O-O-G-L-E. And the meaning is dance, as in... Do you fancy a jugal? Is that yakka or crapper? Well, we have a crapper. Correct. Three out of three. Now, just as a consolation prize, Damien. <laughs> who, who do, where's the ombudsman? Who do I speak to to, to complain about this? Uh, it, well, I suppose it will have to be the chairman. You'll cool. Have to, you have yeah. to write to the chairman. Got a stronger word. You're, you're to redeem yourself and get your second point. <clears throat> this is your final question. Pelched. Which means stolen, as in, he's pelched that, it's not his. Is that yakka or crapper? Yakka. <coughs> I'm oh, afraid okay, not. Mind. I'm afraid not. It means, pelched, P-E-L-C-H-E-D, means tired or out of breath. As in, I need a rest, I'm pelched. And Damien, I imagine after this, you're pelched. No, I'm off for a jugal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what jugal means. I'm confused. I can't remember. <laughs> Well, thank you both. It's been a wonderful interview and I shall be there and I hope as many of our listeners as possible will come to see the Pittman Painters, which is from the 14th to the 21st of May in the Ron Barber Studio. Thank you very much both. Lovely. Cheers, thank John. You. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including the Pittman Painters, by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. It is researched and presented by John O'Neill and Luke Plimmer. With research by Laura East, the music is by Brendan Stanley. The podcast is edited by Kevin Middleton.